1: You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This
2: is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware. This is an episode following the Democratic Convention. We're not going to talk about the Republican Convention yet because at the time of this recording, that convention hasn't started yet. So uh, I promise we'll do a full episode, focus on that. But for this episode, I want to provide a review of the Democratic Convention, uh, which was full of religious references, religious people, religious angles. It was a noteworthy convention in many ways. That is one of them. And so we're going to we're going to dive into that in this episode. Talk about what it means. Importantly, we're going to talk about what it doesn't mean. And there's been some interesting conversation about this point, but but let me first do a bit of a, a review of each day what stuck out to me, uh, and then we'll just have comment on some some broader uh, themes. I'll add before we jump in that I've been uh I did full uh, recaps and analysis of each day of the convention on my Substack at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Again, that's reclaiminghope.substack.com and would urge you to check that out. So this is going to be a bit of an abridged version of that analysis plus some, some additional uh, thoughts. Day one of the convention on Monday was clearly about casting as wide a net as they could. It, it was a it was a day that was full of outreach, not a whole lot of policy uh, specifics. Probably Michelle Obama, who was probably uh, the most widely appealing uh, Democratic uh, related, you know, uh, public figure, gave the keynote. John Kasich delivered. Uh, was featured as a Republican, and they actually had several other Republican uh, former electeds introduce him. Day one was very much about sort of uh, introducing a Democratic Party uh, that you don't see on cable news, and that would be both on Fox News and MSNBC. I think folks watching the convention who pay a lot of attention to politics were like, wait, that's not... <laughs> that's not how I think of the Democratic Party. It was interesting. As as we'll discuss, as the convention goes on, especially on days two and three, there was a bit more of an activist sort of inflected language and sort of standard Democratic politicians. But uh, for this first day, it was, it was about casting a pretty broad tent. That included, as I noted, John Kasich, it also included AOC, and Bernie Sanders, who I think did Biden a huge favor by uh, noting not just where they agreed and not just obviously an endorsement, but actually making clear that there were still areas where they did not agree and really took out the sting of what the Republicans hoped to focus on was I think they were hoping Bernie was going to say some some crazy things Uh or, or if not crazy, just things that don't poll well. Uh, but but Bernie didn't didn't sort of uh, give that to them. Another thing that we saw was a focus on regular, you know, quote unquote, regular Americans. I was especially I took note of uh, Rick Talese, a farmer from Pennsylvania, opened up his remarks offering his condolences to President Trump on the loss of his brother, which I thought was a really human moment. It also sent the message, even though I don't think this was intended. uh, Sent the message that, like, the Biden campaign is attracting people who who are motivated by things other than hatred of President Trump, (laughs) Uh, which I think is a really good, really good message to uh, to send. Michelle Obama gave a speech that I think I've commented in the past, if not on this show, about how interesting it's been to see. The decisions first former First Lady Michelle Obama has made, how she has been presented to the public, the language around her book, which was very sort of Oprah book club friendly, very sort of, you know, let's sit across each other from a kitchen table and I'll, you know, share my feelings. It's a very sort of personal, like people magazine friendly Michelle Obama. And her speech Wasn't a whole bunch of talk of policy. Uh, She referenced in the speech that she hates politics, that she was sort of speaking outside of politics. And there was a disarming quality to the speech uh, and and a real intimacy to it. The the lighting was, you know, warm. (laughs) Uh, You know, the surroundings definitely wanted to sort of create a disarming setting. That's not to say that she didn't She didn't bring it uh, as well. So let me be as honest and clear as I possibly can. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. I mean, it hit. Uh, The the other thing I I just mentioned from uh, day one is the invocation was nationally televised from Reverend Gabriel Salguero, who is a previous guest on this show. Like I said, we try and bring on folks to the show who are going to be and who are players in 2020. We obviously had Josh Dixon, who's running Faith for the Biden campaign. Uh, Previously, we had Reverend Salguero on uh, he nationally televised, and this wasn't. This is how he prays. That that's the point. He prayed in the matchless name of Jesus. And so, if you're tuning in, like like thinking of like this is not the Democratic Party that like Fox News says it is. You know all the narrative. You know going on is from Trump is. You know they're trying to Democrats are trying to hurt God. You know that they won't say Merry Christmas. And the convention literally opens with a Hispanic evangelical pastor praying in the matchless name of Jesus. I mean, like if you're going to put, like if you're not to be crass about, it, but if you're going to score these things, like as evangelical, I'm placing praying in the matchless name of Jesus. That gets a few more points, at least, to, you know, being able to say Merry Christmas when I walk into a Walmart. Like (laughs) So, uh, again, day one, for those who were watching, oriented them to a particular profile of the Democratic Party that, like any profile presented, is not going to capture everything. And so you ask as... You know, someone in the audience, someone watching. Gosh, it's interesting that they made the decision to present this Democratic Party. And so, uh, that was that was day one. Uh, day two was, I think, the weakest of of the convention days. And part this was, you know, kind of built in. It's you know, a significant amount of time is taken up by the roll call, the the nomination process, and we'll talk a bit about that. It's also, I think, because they knew that the roll call was going to be playing such a big role, they also put in some of the more uh, standard politicians uh, here. And so day two, for me, the first hour was pretty pretty rough, generally, though there were some some notable elements. And then when you got to the last 40 minutes, I thought things picked up a bit, even though I'd say it was... Probably the the weakest uh, night so far. I did think it was another night where they wanted to emphasize a, a message that, uh, as Nia Malika Henderson at CNN pointed out, that the message being that America is big enough for everyone. It was a much more sort of activist friendly day of the of the convention, uh, especially in the first hour, first hour fifteen minutes. It it just featured more more activists, but then, as it moved to you know a second uh to again in the last forty minutes, we saw Dr. Joe Biden who I don't think taken on its own was a knockout speech, but it was a clear linchpin in what they were trying to do over the course of the four days, and it was dr. Biden. Who really set up this idea that Joe Biden is someone you could trust, someone who has a life that you can relate to, someone who has values that you can relate to and that and that are that are admirable. She had a message about sort of what it took to rebuild Joe's family following tragedy twice. And implicated I mean not implicated, I mean pretty explicitly You know, drew parallels between that, the love it took to rebuild the Biden family, and what it will take to rebuild uh, the country. Uh, You know, on the activist front, uh, on the first night, social issues were like nowhere to be found. On the second night, so it it opened with a a quote-unquote keynote, which was basically 17 up-and-coming Democrats that just didn't work. Um, glad I'm not the only one who thought it didn't work. Um, it was a scripted speech, but delivered across 17 sort of Democratic politicians, none of whom you had any context for. Some of the lines were attesting to Joe Biden's sort of personal commitments. But unlike a typical keynote, a speech on Tuesday, which in the past was given by people like Mario Cuomo, people like Barack Obama, where you could at least sort of imagine that these folks had the knowledge <laughs> with the with the Democratic nominee to be able to testify on their behalf. Uh, for this, it was like seventeen up and comers, and they were having lines that just didn't quite didn't quite resonate because you had no you had no context for them it also got into sort of like laundry list politics that uh the convention mostly strayed uh away from i do think it was an again i i think it was an important night for achieving some some political goals but from a broader perspective the second night was 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 probably the the least uh the, the least effective at moving the ball forward on its own the uh third night which was a, I think a highlight was chock full of Hillary Clinton, President Obama, Kamala Harris, Gabby Giffords. Almost uh, opened the convention uh, that that night of the convention with really moving remarks. Day three seemed uh, focused and oriented around young people. They had clips of young activists. I think kind of twofold purpose. One, they clearly wanted to focus on trying to boost youth turnout and engage young people w- with with the Biden message, with the Democratic ticket. Uh, and then second, you know, it was interesting. Uh, several times they used young kids to deliver sort of messages on issues that would have hit the ear differently if it came from adults so on climate change on immigration they had young kids sort of speaking to those issues now now you you could you could just say well that was a point of uh, that was a way of pointing out that you know our kids are watching and they see what's happening in this country and Especially on the issue of climate change, they're going to have to deal with the consequences of our action or inaction. But, but I also, I also think there there is a bit of sort of uh, a messaging, sort of two step here. Like let let's let's have the who, who, who could be mad at some uh, some kids for saying this stuff? Um, I, how, how is that going to be attacked? And so I you know I thought that was. That was notable. I did take note. In, there was a video about, uh, sort of, the oh, women's movement, women's march, sort of women in history and democratic politics. And then also more recently, uh, this video led into Hillary Clinton's speech. I did note that you know the the video um, like so often happens it acted as if it was advancing consensus positions on issues like abortion that are not consensus at all, but did so sort of under the guise of being the voice of women when, you know, if you consult uh, w- women, uh, they they are not all in the same same place on that issue. So I did take note of that. Although it's, you know, worth, there was a mention of basically one line on abortion in uh, day two during the keynote. In this video, there, there there wasn't a huge focus either, and so I thought I thought that was that was really really interesting. Oh, one more note, which is they did air a longer video on the Violence Against Women Act that Biden wrote and was the leader on, and I thought that that video was a really really helpfully pulled together the threads that they were telling throughout the convention, his biography, his family, the values handed down to him from his parents, Biden's ability to build relationships across the aisle to enact substantive real change. That video was like the most, one of the more holistic cases for who Biden is and why he should be president. So I thought I thought that was well done. Uh, president Obama spoke. Uh, Some people were saying, like, the most important speech he's ever given. I think that's ridiculous. Um, Like, one way you could tell is that, you know, it wasn't the leading news item, like, three days after it happened. That being said, it was one of his best speeches, in my view. Other people were saying that the speech reflected how much Obama had changed over the years when I saw nothing but And heard nothing but pure Obama in that speech. Obama back to 2004 and prior to 2004. I was actually quite, like, moved by and struck by the consistencies. There was also this idea that Obama... That the speech had shown that Obama had turned to fear rather than hope. And I I just the analysis of Barack Obama still remains to be so unbelievably shallow. (laughs) I mean, I I still, it's unbelievable to me how hard you have to look for someone who who gets him. And they are out there. I'm just, it's just been something else to see the narratives, obviously, through his presidency. But even now, like... (laughs) in these concentrated moments where he's speaking, how many band tapes are, are out there? Uh, I, I mean, I think this speech was pure Obama. It was Obama uh, extract. Uh, he referred, uh, the speech was in some way centered around, he spoke from Philadelphia, which, you know, I took as a bit of an homage to, or a reference to, uh, his speech on race that he gave in 2008 in the middle of his campaign 12 years ago. Uh, there were some lines and devices in his convention speech in 2020 that reminded me of that speech and seemed to allude to that speech. Um, and, and then, of course, Obama is a constitutional lawyer. So he's speaking in Philadelphia, opening up with references uh, to the Constitution, telling a story of America, which has been a way that he's viewed his role as president to tell what he considers to be a better story of America and American values than what other people are offering.
0: I'm in Philadelphia, where our constitution was drafted and signed. It wasn't a perfect document. It allowed for the inhumanity of slavery and failed to guarantee women and even men who didn't own property, the right to participate in the political process. But embedded in this document was a North Star that would guide future generations. A system of representative government, a democracy, through which we could better realize our highest ideals.
2: And so, yeah, I mean, this was just... And then the core thing for me... What attracted me to Barack Obama was this sort of irrepressible commitment he has to rhetorically trying to reach out to people in just like extreme ways. And like, in just like this irrepressible commitment he has to make the best argument he can to people who don't agree with him yet. For me, in a public servant, it's a really admirable, admirable trait. I could read the whole speech for you, uh, but won't do that. Would really encourage you, though, to read the speech. Yeah, it, it was an amazing case for, for Joe Biden. Uh, I will say the other narrative sort of coming into the speech was that his endorsement of Biden was not as strong as his endorsement of Clinton, etc., etc. Well, he put that to bed. <laughs> Uh, He put that to bed in his convention speech, giving Biden a incredibly robust endorsement and validation. Joe and I come from different places, different
0: generations. But what I quickly came to admire about Joe Biden is his resilience, born of too much struggle, his empathy, born of too much grief. For eight years, Joe was the last one in the room whenever I faced a big decision. He
2: made me a better president.
0: And he's got the character and the experience to make us a better country.
2: Finally, with day three, Senator Harris, a historic speech by virtue of who she is. I don't think the speech worked for a key reason. So I don't think she did the ticket any harm in this speech. And I do think she accomplished some critical things. Her focus on her biography, I think, and her her background, just for the history books. People watching, all of us watching that speech, to see her stand in that place. And what it brought to mind about the fact that that has happened so rarely before. So, I mean, just to run through the Kamala Harris is the, if, if elected, she'd be the first woman to serve as president or vice president, only the second black person to serve as president or a vice president, the first South Asian person to serve as president or vice president. I mean, just, just incredible. I, I will say, you know, she, um, what was odd about her speech was it's focus on arguing that Joe Biden would bring Americans together which is something they want to emphasize about Biden. It's something that is true about Joe Biden. The odd thing, of course, is that Harris is not someone who's broadly recognized as bringing people together herself. So if if Harris was the nominee, she would benefit from Joe Biden vouching that she could bring people together. I didn't see I didn't think they did enough work to solidify her as someone who would bring to bring people together sort of in a in a. Uh, in a way that could benefit Biden in that moment. I might have suggested a a different focus on the speech. I do think what it did show was the extent to which, you know, Harris is joining the Biden campaign. It is a Biden-Harris ticket led by Joe Biden. Joe Biden's selection of Harris did not, is not resulting in some middle point between them. Uh, But, Joe Biden asked Harris to service his running mate, and so uh, you know I, I think I think that was important. And again, I, th- I think she I think she did a I think she did a good job. I think what's clear is Harris is not like a filler running mate. She's not like um, politically speaking. Like she has loads of chari- charisma, and tenacity, and personality. Um, She's someone who I think has an authentic aura that can cut through. She's not like a neutral, a neutral force. She, she, she's someone who's going to get attention and who's, who's going to have an impact on this, on this ticket. All right. Let's talk about day four. Day four, I think was, it was an effective uh, night. What was uh, stunning about it. Yeah, you know, I've been involved personally in two democratic conventions Obviously, I've I've seen quite a quite a few of these. I have never seen such faith forward, such a extended faith-forward block of programming as we as we saw at this convention. And let me just like give you a give you a sense of what that means. So it basically started with an invocation from Sister Simone Campbell, who I had the honor of inviting to speak at the convention in 2012, um, and she delivered an invocation that led into Senator Chris Coons, another guest, a previous guest of the Faith 2020 podcast, who gave an entire speech about faith, uh, speaking explicitly about Joe Biden's personal faith and character and Joe's understanding of and respect for the role faith plays in Americans' lives. Uh, here's an excerpt from Senator Coons' speech. I'm Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, and I want to tell you about my friend Joe Biden. His faith is
0: strong, and it's personal and private. For Joe, faith isn't a prop or a political tool. I've known Joe about 30 years, and I've seen his faith in action. Joe knows the power of prayer, and I've seen him in moments of joy and triumph, of loss and despair, turn to God for strength. Joe's comforted me in my toughest moments, as he has so many others. I'll never forget how Joe took the time to offer me words of comfort as my father lay in hospice. Time and again, I've seen him stop everything and listen, really listen, to someone who needs a shoulder to cry on or a partner in prayer. That compassion, that empathy is part of his character. More than anything, Joe is a man of faith and conscience. He'll be a president for Americans of all faiths, as well as people of conscience who practice no particular faith.
2: After Coons, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms spoke about John Lewis, C.T. Vivian, and voting rights and civil rights, which led into a video on John Lewis and the civil rights movement uh, leading up to today. Then John Legend and Common performed uh, their gospel and view song Glory from Selma. Then John Meacham, a Christian who has written a book about Jesus, spoke about the values of the civil rights movement and the moral moment we're in now. It was 40 minutes. I mean, just like segment after segment, I was like, whoa. Um, And just to give you some context here, you know, I've been involved in democratic political efforts where you had communication staffers telling reporters not to report on faith events that the principal was doing basically because it made them uncomfortable or because it was something that, you know, got on the calendar, but that they didn't want a lot of focus on. And so, you know, it's something like this doesn't just happen. Uh, it's, it's, it's part of, uh, um, it's it's a decision. like they, they they knew what they were doing here. and so we you know part of what we'll get to is you know why did they do this? What were they going after? I have a lot more to say on that.'ll we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. but just to uh, continue uh, it, that wasn't the only faith reference. Pete Buttigieg talked about, uh, quote, faith that is about healing, not exclusion. Uh, there was an extensive biographical video leading into Biden's speech that featured several uh, several references to faith. And then the benediction uh, was shared between a Jewish, a Muslim, and Catholic speaker. The uh, Catholic speaker being Father James Martin, who uh, prayed for, among others who are most in need, uh, the unborn child in the womb. Uh really um so that's that's notable. Joe Biden's speech more than met the moment in my mind. He opened the speech quoting Ella Baker. The speech was, as his entire campaign has been, morally infused. It's he's making a moral
1: argument. Let me take a moment to speak to those of you who have lost the most. I have some idea how it feels to lose someone you love. I know that deep black hole that opens up in the middle of your chest and you feel like you're being sucked into it. I know how mean and cruel and unfair life can be sometimes. But I've learned two things. First, your loved one may have left this earth, but they'll never leave your heart. They'll always be with you. You'll always hear them. And second... I found the best way through pain and loss and grief is to find purpose. As God's children, each of us have a purpose in our lives. We have a great purpose as a nation to open the doors of opportunity to all Americans, to save our democracy, to be a light to the world once again, and finally to live up to and make real the words written in the sacred documents that founded this nation that all men and women are created equal endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among them life liberty and the pursuit of happiness
2: the the moment wasn't everything that i'm sure biden wanted it to be and this there was no audience he is someone who relates to a crowd but he did he did what he had to do he he met the moment so that's that's the four days when we get back I just want to talk a bit more thematically about what I think was accomplished, particularly when it comes to faith, and then we'll look at it to the Republican convention and uh, and how the last you know ten weeks or so of this race are going to shape up. This is the Faith Twenty Twenty podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Faith Twenty Twenty podcast. In the previous segment. We just did a bit of an overview of the four days uh, of the convention. Um, w- we were not able to cover everything. And so if I left out, uh, you know, a, a part that, that you would have liked me to cover, uh, I'm sorry. We just uh, couldn't cover everything. I-, I would urge people to go back and watch some of the speeches, especially uh, First Lady Michelle Obama's Uh, Joe Biden's and and former President Barack Obama's, for sure. And then some of the videos are just helpful. I I, want to make a few comments here. The whole convention seemed cognizant of religious voters and uh, sort of voters who want sort of an agreement with Democrats on everything. And this is from day one, having John Kasich speak. Colin Powell, I didn't mention that he spoke. I mean, pretty pretty consistent. I want to say a few things about this one, just to get it out of the way, like just put up this convention up against what Democrats did in 2016. And if you still can't see the difference between a campaign that's earnestly seeking the votes of every American, uh, and a campaign like in 2016 that at best was happy to get votes, but, uh, what was, was, uh, was also happy happy to get them by making people feel as uh, pressured about it as possible. You know, then I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, look, I, I will, um, obviously I want to, you know, we got to see how the rest of this race shakes shakes up. But if the election was held today and there was no movement in religious numbers from 2016, then I'd have to reevaluate a lot of sort of my approach well here's what i'd say i think if the election was held today there would be significant shift in the numbers and i'm not talking 20 points i'm talking about uh, oh. uh, biden winning the catholic vote uh overall i'm talking biden getting over 20 uh, percent or over among white evangelicals and at the end of the day it's really not rocket science i mean he, he's asked for their votes that that first forty minutes of day four of the convention meets the bar in my mind of explicitly asking for the votes of religious people. This is something that I've said for years, uh for the last four years Clinton did not do. I, I think Biden has met that bar. I continue to hope that there will be some kind of uh faith event with Biden, some kind of faith speech or a sort of signature meeting. Uh, that he he has that would add to that, that maybe even make it more explicit. But in my view, the carpet's been rolled out. People obviously have a decision to make. When I say an invitation, I don't mean that the argument is over. I'm saying the I'm saying the conversation has opened. In in 2016, in my view, with broad swaths of the faith community, the conversation never even started. Like there just wasn't an interest in having it. Biden campaign is clearly interested in having it. So, so that w- that would be the first thing. Just the the gulf between this convention, not just on faith. Just this com- this convention was so much better. That would be the first thing. The the second thing is I don't want folks to get confused, particularly Christians. Well, a- actually, I, I won't even say that. I think this is important for everybody. Um, uh, you know, because I do get the sense that some. Uh, some non-religious folks were watching the convention. Well, well so there were some interesting re- reactions uh, on a number of fronts. There are a few things I guess I want to say here. Uh, the first thing I'd say is I've seen the reaction among both Christians and non-Christians who are supporting Biden or being like, well, if the religious folks won't support him after that convention, I don't know what will convince them. Uh, like they, they talked about God so much like uh, Everyone was saying Joe Biden was a man of faith. (laughs) And it's true. Like, speakers that you were like, oh, 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 okay, that's good to know. Like, it was just a line inserted into uh, a a few of the speeches, it seemed. I just want to say that's not like the way we should be. The The way that you think about faith voters is not by telling up each candidate's number of mentions of faith. And sort of whoever gets, you know, whoever mentions God more, you know, is going to win religious voters. Like, that's just not how analysts should be thinking about it. It's also not how Christians should be thinking about it. So the faith mentions during the convention are important, not because they like tickle the ears of religious people, not because like... It makes religious people feel seen necessarily, not because there are sort of cultural references that religious people get. That could all be powerful pers- uh, on, on a rhetorical basis, but the, but the reason why they're why they're meaningful and where where I would ask Christians to sort of focus their attention is on the commitments that are implicated by the rhetoric, and so. What does it mean for for Joe Biden? Uh, what does it mean for the um, for the convention to uh, focus on faith so much? Well, a big piece of it is that such a view comes with obligations and responsibilities. That if you talk about the role of faith in America, well, valuing that role means that you don't you don't want to undermine it. If Biden gets elected, you can say in a substantive way, you know, remember when at your convention this, this, and this was said. There was talk of the dignity of work. Well, if Biden does something that undermines the dignity of work, he's he's on the record talking about how important that value is. He can now be measured up against that. This is how and why speeches generally should be persuasive. And why faith rhetoric, uh, in, in particular, uh, should be noteworthy. That it's not about simply just making us f- you know, feel good, but it's about what commitments can we get out of it. And that's why the most effective sort of uh, faith rhetoric should be those that make the commitments more and more uh, explicit, that give us more and more to hold politicians accountable to. Uh, and then I'd say the other side of the value Uh, post, uh, uh, in addition to commitment, is that to the extent that the rhetoric is culturally edifying, you know, so is it a good thing on balance to have a convention, for instance, that for the first 40 minutes uh, or or, uh, on day four of the convention is lifting up how faith saw civil rights leaders through difficult moments and how it grounded their values. Is it culturally edifying, culturally beneficial for folks to see prayer comforting Joe Biden in times of grief? These are important. Now it all has a context. People's read on it might be different, but, but I'm just putting that out there as another sort of lens of evaluation that is uh more responsible than oh i'm so you know so glad they so glad they were speaking to me or you know so glad that you know all my quirks and affinities were lifted up and again all that has a rhetorical value i'm not saying that that, that isn't what drives some of the response but i'm just saying Uh, That is not what we should be going to politics for, for that kind of affirmation, for that kind of that kind of expression. Yeah. You know, the the other piece of this, though, was, you know, there was this debate after the convention. Uh, Franklin Graham tweeted out saying uh, he was watching the convention and was surprised by how by the fact that God is absent at the convention, that no one's talking about God. Like, clearly he wasn't watching the convention, A, but B, it was, like, within just hours of that tweet, uh, Taffy uh, Ackner, uh, the, the author and New York Times writer, uh, tweeted something along the lines of, like, is, it, is anyone, like, unsettled by how Christian this is? And I thought that was, like, such a interesting picture of American discourse right now. Like, we're – and I say discourse because, right, like, what the Biden campaign – got was that like those aren't the only, <laughs> those aren't the only, those are like the polls of the debate right now. Like those are, those are the polls of like where things are, but that's not the majority of American people. I mean, that's how, that's how Biden, that's one window window into how Biden got the nomination and, and why I think he's poised to, to head to the white house. So last thing I'll uh, speak to is just, like, why did they do this? And, you know, just to be clear, I don't think they hit every note perfectly, even on faith stuff. There are things I would have done differently, but I I wasn't doing them, you know? Like like it's, um, but I don't think they hit every note perfectly, I do think, relative to the options. (laughs) I was surprised by how strong they came at faith, and so why did they come so strong on faith? And it's uh, very clearly to me, because they... They have become convinced and aware that Donald Trump only wins this election if he is able to make religion work for him in a maximalist way. The Biden campaign up to this point has seemed to me to make a decision that they're not going to let him uh, let Donald Trump sort of play on this field on his own. They're not going to give him sort of this whole swath of voters and this whole sort of this whole set of frequencies of... American discourse, they're not going to let Trump sort of have that all to himself. And so they're going to challenge him where they could challenge him. They're going to set up their own narrative and tell their own story where they can. And that's what this convention was about. And it was about that because I think they know that this week, this Republican convention is going to be very heavy on on this stuff as well, on faith, on faith as well. And they know that in the final 10 weeks of this campaign, that Trump is going to be closing hard on religion. It's all he has. It's all he has. I mean, that's why Donald Trump was uh, tweeting this week about some caucus meeting that no one really pays attention to. That you know are not micromanaged, are not where a couple f- folks at these caucus meetings did not say "under God" when they recited the pledge. He, now it's important. That, it's important to note that Joe Biden's grandchildren opened up the convention by saying the pledge with under God. Uh, Cedric Richmond, congressman from Louisiana, co-chair of the uh, Biden campaign, uh, read the pledge of allegiance saying under God, literally like dozens of people throughout the democratic convention, like the, like the, uh, the official portions, like the convention nights said under God. But of course the whole debates, a distraction anyways, like, they, they they were looking for anything that they could sort of misconstrue to – because it, it's, it really is all they have. Now, I will say that the proficiency of the Biden campaign when it comes to faith puts into a really stark light just the disarray of the DNC generally. I, I'm not referring – just – I'm not referring here to Derek Harkins uh, – Derek Harkins is a longtime colleague. He, he knows more about religion. Uh, he's forgotten more about religion uh, than I'll, I'll ever know. I am referring, though, to the overall DNC. I am referring to the fact that now, over the last 12 months, you've had a process that could lead to the resolution they allowed, A, that they allowed to even be brought up to a vote. That was clearly written by just like a handful of activists that really don't represent anybody, but for some reason have, because no no one is really focusing on the DNC. uh, These folks just have sort of uh, the ability to have sway, I guess. But, but, you know, that was even brought up for a vote should have never happened. uh, B, that it passed and passed without much review and without much thought. A to the to the merits of the resolution, or B the message it would send. Then you have these caucus, and I, I watched some of these caucus meetings. I, I knew some of this stuff was gonna be an issue. You know, it, it it's just become clear that the DNC is operating in such a small, narrow world that it's not even it's not doing themselves or politicians, Democratic politicians, any favors. There is too often more risk of damage being done when the DNC is involved than anything good actually coming out of it from from just like a pure political perspective. And that, that just is going to have to be addressed. There was a draft of the platform that to me read like it was informed by the very same narrow set of actors that were involved in the resolution on religiously unaffiliated Americans. The draft of the platform was in bad shape. (laughs) I'll just say that. Folks can feel free to pull it up. Fortunately, that was not the final platform. Uh, The final platform on faith is not perfect, but it's like what a competent... Team would produce. But the fact that the initial language wasn't what a competent team would produce again puts some real questions into the DNC's competency when it comes to faith in particular, but it goes more broadly than that. Like, is the DNC, is the process that leads to documents like the resolution, leads to documents like the initial draft of the platform? Is that process not just reflective of what is politically helpful, is it reflective of the Democratic base? Is it reflective of the backbone of the Democratic Party? I would say the answer is clearly no. The DNC has a process on faith that is, that is leading to outcomes that are contrary even to the base of the Democratic Party, not to mention what's actually helpful to advancing the Democratic Party. Um uh, And so, uh, you know, that will be a conversation for after uh, this election. It's a inside baseball sort of it's an institutional kind of question, but it will have to be addressed. After years of on again, off again relationships with faith outreach, the DNC manages to only start up, you know, months before an election cycle. They established an interfaith council the interfaith council doesn't reflect the demographics of the democratic party again not to mention the demographics of the country and then it, i mean i'll ju- i'll just say this one of the co-chairs of the interfaith council is a secular activist which is like it d- definitely has a place in the party my my question is just it's the interfaith council like the only the, the, the only, like, you know, barrier of entry is faith. Like, it's inter, so it's, like, all faiths, all faiths Well, But if you have an interfaith council that includes people who aren't people of faith, that's not a council, that's the whole party. Like, who doesn't fit in that category then? So, like, it, you know, it shows, it, it shows an uneasiness with faith. In the DNC, that was not reflected in the convention, and certainly isn't reflected in either Joe Biden or Barack Obama. It's its last two, you know, the last two leaders of the party. Again, I just want to be clear. The idea is, I was proud to work for the first president who mentioned religiously unaffiliated Americans, secular Americans, in his inauguration speech. Religiously unaffiliated uh, Americans were were mentioned by Senator Chris Coons in his speech on faith. Completely appropriate. That that's not my point. My point is just if you have an interfaith council, it should be it should be a council of people of faith. Like <laughs> all right, I think I think I've made I think I've made that point. Let's close with just uh, looking at the Republican convention. Here here's what we know speaking of the Democrats platform the Republicans just aren't going to have a platform they 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 are foregoing a platform and basically uh saying that like whatever Donald Trump <laughs> whatever whatever Donald Trump's position our position is on the issue that's our position which is which is fitting for a party that has been you know, hollowed out intellectually unfortunately like the, if you don't have a platform does that mean you're taking god out of your platform or are you throwing god into a void i'm trying to think of like what what god angle republicans would have if democrats just said that they weren't going to do a platform uh, but so no platform uh the trump uh campaign put out a list of 50 priorities uh that Trump would have in a second term, uh, s- some of which like guess it's, it's a wish list without any sort of like, you know, it's like create 10 million jobs. It's like, okay, great. Uh, how, how? <laughs> um, but it, what's also interesting about this 50 item list is that, Abortion isn't mentioned. Religious freedom isn't mentioned. All of the reasons the people of faith are supposed to ignore everything bad about Donald Trump and support him. Like that's not mentioned in his second term agenda. And so I'm sure that, you know, they're going to hear from Ralph Reed and and uh, Franklin Graham and say, oh, you got to do something here. And they'll put out some sort of separate list. They'll, they'll make some sort of... Uh, a little extra show it is stunning to me that it's not on this i mean this is this is what they put out convention week president trump's second term this is what it's going to look like and abortion and religious freedom are nowhere to be seen and just uh really astounding you 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 wonder if what we're going to see this week at the republican convention is maybe a bit of a turn away from evangelicals Maybe a desire to express that maybe Trump isn't all too wrapped up, and with evangelicals, I mean they do have Abby Johnson's going to be speaking, who's a former Planned Parenthood staffer who has become a pro life activist. Uh, The 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 boy from Covington High School uh, is going to be speaking. Catholic nuns gonna be speaking. I'm assuming on religious freedom and and uh those kinds of uh concerns uh so they're not gonna move away t- you know too much. they have some religious speakers lined up. I believe Cardinal Dolan will be speaking doing an invocation as of the time of this recording they haven't listed they haven't put out the full list of uh of invocations and benedictions so we'll we'll just kind of have to see again it's it's interesting that uh that this list came out, which perked my ears up to to the sense maybe this convention won't be what I'm expecting, but here's what I'm expecting that aside, which is a convention that uses very blunt very direct religious appeals um that are uh crass that are direct that are sort of blunt instruments. Because that's all this president knows. Um, It's going to be really interesting to see what the Biden campaign feels compelled to respond to. And what they sort of either don't feel is worth responding to. Or that they just don't have a good answer for. And We'll we'll keep tabs of that. President Trump is going to be speaking. Apparently, he'll be speaking every night. um, Along with... A lot of his family members, uh, Rand Paul, Nikki Haley, are are going to speak. Um, Joni Ernst is going to speak, but it is going to be like 2016. It's not going to be an establishment convention, in part because much of the Republican establishment doesn't doesn't like <laughs> Donald Trump, but also because I mean Donald Trump sort of runs off of that. Discomfort that the establishment Has with him he tries to Turn it into sort of a testament To how he upsets the status Quo the problem is that he's Been president for four years he he is the Status quo now um, So we're we're just going to see how this uh, This shakes Out uh, and, and we'll uh, We'll do an episode focused on the republican convention itself I'm hoping to have a guest for That episode and so that should be uh that should be fun, and then we'll be off to the races, folks. Biden continues to look in a strong position, but things things can change. I would highly recommend to you adam nagurney's uh story in the New York Times about george h w bush's uh race in nineteen eighty eight um where he was behind i think thirteen points around the conventions. And then ended up, of course, coming back, not just to beat Michael Dukakis, but wipe the floor with him. Um, and how that happened, uh, I think it's an insightful story that uh, folks need to have their eyes uh, open for and, and to. Uh, all right. Uh, it was f- fun recapping this convention, uh, uh, the Democratic convention with you. Look forward to doing the same. With the Republican convention, uh, hey, as this thing picks up, uh, let me know what questions you have. I'm happy to cover questions uh, on the podcast. I know I, I'm I'm pretty responsive on social media too, so sometimes we just are able to cover questions there. But um, but but would love to uh, unpack some of the things that are uh, confounding you in this presidential election cycle. All right, that's all I have for you uh, this week. This is Michael Ware for the Faith 2020 Podcast. We'll talk to you soon.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast.